Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease, and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. In this episode of Case Notes, we're going to start off with a history of dermatology, then we're going to talk to Dr. Ophelia Dadzi about her work in the area, and we'll finish off with a case study. Early works from antiquity and the Renaissance said little about the skin. The skin was pulled back and displayed, but rarely studied. Flayed and tanned human skin was frequently part of university collections, and was passed round to audiences at anatomical lecture theatres to hold and examine. Anatomists navigated the cultural sensitivity around flaying by dissecting condemned criminals. Flaying, then, was just an extension of the punishment they received in life. One visitor to Leiden, in the Netherlands, recorded that they had observed a skeleton on display with, quote, a shirt made of his own bowels and shoes of his own skin. The Fabrica, a celebrated Renaissance anatomical text by Flemish anatomist Andreas Vesalius, is a detailed attempt to map the human body, and yet the skin is barely mentioned. Although Vesalius devoted little attention in this work to the skin itself, he did however record that, quote, It is certain that there are two layers of skin, namely the external one, which is called the leather hide, and the interior, which is the true skin, and which cannot be cured if it is cut. So the specialty of dermatology has a relatively short history. Although the first medical text specifically written on the skin dates from the 1500s, it was only in the late 1700s that it began to be viewed as a specialised branch of study. The microscope was a key tool in the developing study of the complex and layered structure of the skin. Visualising technology was central to the establishment of this new specialty. Advances in printing, modelling and finally photography allowed physicians and surgeons to capture and share the minute differences between skin complaints. This aided in the creation of classifications to create a common language of names for individual diseases of the skin. By the Victorian period, dermatological texts, often more highly illustrated than other medical texts, were produced in large numbers and purchased not only by medical practitioners, but by the lay public also. This did much to popularise the idea of consulting a dermatological specialist. 
Dermatological illustrations in the 1800s were often stylized or romanticized versions of skin diseases. The skin markings are often reminiscent of flora, tentacles or tapestries. The folds of fabric or the details of lace bonnets were often captured in as much detail as the intricacies of the diseased skin itself. The patients who were depicted in these dermatological illustrations were commonly pauper patients at charitable London hospitals, and yet they were depicted in print in poses reminiscent of aristocrats or concubines of the classical period. Wax models were another common way of illustrating skin diseases in the 1800s. It is often difficult to tell whether a wax model was cast from the face of a living or dead person. Anatomical models and death masks have been produced since antiquity, often using clay, marble or ivory. Wax models, or moulages, for medical teaching and study were developed in the 1600s in Italy. While such models were used in surgery, obstetrics and ophthalmology, it was in the field of dermatology that they reached their apex. The growth in identified skin diseases in the 1700s and 1800s meant it was increasingly important to be able to distinguish minute differences between them. As a result, a distinct field of art developed, and some artists or moulagers dedicated their careers to modelling and colouring models of rashes, tumours, scars and pimples. Thomas Bateman and Robert Willen in Britain, and Jean-Louis Alibert in France, carried out extensive research and published widely on the classification and identification of skin diseases. Often regarded as the founding figure of modern dermatology, Willen defined the first four classifications of skin diseases in volume one of his seminal work on cutaneous diseases in 1808. Willen died in 1812 before he could publish his second volume. Devoted to his friend and the study of dermatology, Bateman finished Willen's work and published the second volume in 1819. Together, Bateman and Willen's work was the first modern attempt to classify and properly define skin diseases in Britain, and was influential at home and abroad. But not all specialists agreed with this approach, and new and often conflicting ways of classifying and understanding skin diseases were also developed. Developing a common language which crossed national boundaries was essential to sharing information, diagnoses and methods of treatment. Alibert was the chief medical officer at the St. Louis Hospital in Paris, and was the first to develop a teaching centre focused around diseases of the skin. In England, Bateman and Willen's new classifications of diseases were based on their outward appearance. Alibert's system was much more complicated. Based on botanical classification, he arranged skin diseases into families and species. Alibert arranged them not only by their appearance, but by their symptoms, causes and duration. His theory was not accepted by his peers, and Alibert and his research became the subject of ridicule and attacks. Dermatology faced challenges in its development which other specialties did not. In Edinburgh, attempts were made repeatedly from the 1820s to set up a dermatology dispensary. A series of failed attempts which finally succeeded in 1890 were the establishment of the Edinburgh Dispensary for Diseases of the Skin. Similar stops and starts took place elsewhere. In London, two short-lived attempts were made to establish a Journal of Dermatology, before the British Journal of Dermatology was finally established in 1888. Skin complaints were associated in people's minds with venereal diseases, promiscuity and filth. The public were much less willing to donate to a cause with such negative associations than they were to give to more worthy causes, like orphan children, or less tainted diseases, such as smallpox and typhus. A 
Ophelia has dedicated her interview to the memory of her beloved father, Benjamin Dadzi, former international civil servant at the United Nations. So we have here with us Dr. Ophelia Dadzi. So I wondered if we could just start off with you just saying, you know, a little bit about yourself. So yes, um, my name is Dr. Ophelia Dadzi. I am currently a consultant dermatologist at the Hillenden Hospital. And I also um, I'm founder and director of two skincare companies, London Ethnic Skin and also UMEL. In terms of my background, I trained in um, general medicine and then I trained specifically in dermatology in the UK and, um, and also in a speciality called dermatopathology, which is reading skin biopsy specimens under the microscope. And for this training, I actually did it in the US in Boston for a couple of years. Fantastic, thank you very much. So I figured if we just start off with the absolute basics, which is what is dermatology? How would you define it? So for me, a dermatology is a branch of medicine that involves the study of skin and the diseases that pertains to skin, but it's not just skin. When you look at skin, it also, it also includes the appendages. So that's hair, nails, and also mucous membranes. So that to me is really what dermatology is about. Thank you. And sort of following on from that, I'm just curious, are there any sort of stereotypes around dermatology? Is there anything that would surprise people about the sort of work that you do? Yes, I think when the general public think of dermatology, immediately they think of cosmetics and think it has to do with cosmetic and health and beauty, but that's just one aspect of dermatology. I think people may not necessarily realize that there is a link between what goes on inside of you, uh, what we call internal diseases, systemic diseases, and the skin. And so systemic diseases can actually manifest on the skin. So dermatology is actually a medical speciality. So I think that's a common misconception that I, I think people need to understand. The second thing that I think people may not realize is just the sheer number of skin diseases that exist. We all know about the common skin diseases that we all suffer from, acne, eczema, psoriasis. But if I was to tell people that there's over a thousand skin diseases that exist, I think most people will be really surprised and some are extremely rare. Well, I'm already learning things that I didn't know. Um, so thank you very much. So how important is skin color in dermatology today? I would say that skin color is extremely important in dermatology today because what we need to understand is that skin color can impact the type of skin diseases you get, how it looks, and also the type of treatments we can offer you. So let me give you examples of these. So in terms of the type of skin diseases you're prone to, if you're someone who has very fair skin, lightly pigmented of European ancestry, and you go out and you get lots of sun and you get sunburned, you're going to be at risk of skin cancer. In terms of how it looks on your skin, if you're someone who have very darkly pigmented skin and you get acne, the redness, the concept of erythema, which you may see in someone with lightly pigmented skin, you may not see in someone who have more darkly pigmented skin. What they may present with is dark patches. We call that acne hyperpigmented macules. And in fact, that's what they're going to be mostly concerned about, the uneven skin tones and the dark patches. And then the third point about the type of 
treatments we give to you. If I decide that I'm going to treat a wart, for instance, by spraying it with liquid nitrogen and you have very darkly pigmented skin, you can actually get a result of that more darker pigmentation on the site. We call that post-inflammation hyperpigmentation. So these are all examples of how skin color is important in dermatology. And finally, I will also say that it's even more relevant now because we've got a sheer variety of human skin colors. And part of that is that we're also now traveling more, living in different places. So you have people with different skin colors, people of different ancestries coming together, marrying. So on a daily basis, we're generating new phenotypes, new skin colors on a daily basis. And as a speciality, we must really appreciate that and make sure that our dermatology, our practice tallies with the reality of what's happening in real life. Thank you so much. So you're talking about the situation now. I wondered if you had any thoughts on the past lack of representation, um, particularly in images of, you know, variety of skin colours. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, to be able to address that, I think we need to think about how dermatology, as we practiced it, developed. So most of dermatology as practice now developed in Western Europe. So we have come from a history of Eurocentrism in terms of the language, the way we describe skin diseases. And that's because that's how it was developed and practiced in people with more lightly pigmented skin. So example I'll give to you when we talk about psoriasis, a common skin condition, we talk about in terms of description that it's salmon pink colored with scales, but someone who has more darkly pigmented skin, it's not going to be salmon skin colored, but that is the history and the origins of dermatology. And this has sort of been through our speciality such that it's in the language we use. We talk about erythema, it's in how we grade skin diseases. Most of them are based on redness. If you've got darkly pigmented skin, you know, you're not going to have redness being appreciated or it may look slightly different, you know. So it's in that, it's the images we use, so everything it's steeped in that, and it's from a historical um, aspect of our speciality. And it's a problem, but it, it is changing. Thank you. So you, you've touched on this already, but I wondered if you had any thoughts on the problems that result from this lack of diversity in, in illustrations, you know, the tangible problems that you face in your work. Well, I mean, if you have been um, through training in dermatology and I have to say things have changed now but let's go back you know 10-15 years ago you've been through training in dermatology and you know you have been taught certain languages psoriasis is salmon pink colored you know acne grading skills is based on erythema and then you go into real life practice and you're working in a city like London where the patients, majority of your patients sitting in front of you are not going to be people necessarily of European ancestry with lightly pigmented skin. How do you tally what you've been taught with the reality of what's, what the patients that you, you face them? And I think, you know, that is problematic. And of course, over time, you can, you can acquire clinical skills. And, you know, if you're smart, you, you sort of recognize what the issues are. And I think, you know, in terms of even how we assess how a disease impacts people, there's a bit of bias there, because if your grading sales is based on erythema and you're not thinking about the fact that someone who has darkly pigmented skin 
having lots of dark patches really impacts them. That's lower down in terms of appreciating how a disease is impacting someone's quality of life. You know, let's talk about another thing. You know, when you talk about um, problems, which you see in patients of, let's say, African ancestry, a lot of them might be hair and scalp disorders, you know, might be pigmentary issues. They may not necessarily be suffering from skin cancer. And yes, you know, certain types of skin cancer will cause death, you know, it's morbidity and mortality. And hair loss and pigmentary issue isn't going to kill people. But actually for them, it's actually a significant problem. So it's, it's, you know, the problem I see is that if you come from Eurocentrism, you look at things already with biased views. And that is part of the issue in terms of the lack of diversity in, our, in dermatology, the training, et cetera. We need to step away from Eurocentrism and it actually will improve our clinical practice. Thank you. So you, you mentioned the fact that th there is a change underway, that it's not as bad as it once was, although obviously there's still some more work to do. But I wondered if you could talk a bit more about the, the progress in recent years, including your own work to sort of to, to make these changes. Yes. Yeah, so I think I would say that, you know, throughout and I can comment on British dermatology history, British dermatologists have been very, very good at um, expanding their knowledge and you know you go back in the 70s etc you had British dermatologists going to work in different countries and bringing back that expertise you know in Nigeria etc and I think that is wonderful and then over time particularly coming from America and then subsequently from here a lot came from dermatologists who were really of non-European ancestry who started saying, hey, we, we have to do a little bit more. So then this was done by trying to get groups together to start addressing this lack of diversity. And it started with umbrella terms such as skin of color or ethnic dermatology. And I think, although the language I would say is rather unfortunate now, but back then it did a job, which is to raise an awareness that we had an issue um, that had to be addressed. But as we become smarter and wiser, we know that one of the key issues we need to do is to address the language and terminologies that we use for talking about skin color. And I think this is where the game changer is. And I've been very fortunate that I've been working as um, part of the BAD chairing uh, a group called the Derm Lexicon Group, where we're actually doing exactly this trying to develop a new scale, new classification system for talking about skin color. And in so doing, trying to make it an objective system and also using language that is non-pejorative, you know, doesn't add any value to skin color. So I'll step back, you know, to date, as I said, we've used terms such as skin of color, ethnic skin, you talk about people being white or black, this is completely subjective. You know, how do you define someone being white? In clinical practice research, you want to be a little bit more objective. What is skin of color? And that's a problem. So in dermatology, we used to default to something called the Fitzpatrick skin phototype classification system. And this was developed by Thomas Fitzpatrick, um, who is a professor of dermatology in the US. And this talks about how skin reacts to, to sun, UV exposure, and you have type one to type six skin. Initially, actually, he developed it for European skin. And then later on, 
other skin types were added. But again, it's subjective and people automatically will look at you where you're from and assume you must be of a certain skin type. So they will look at me and say, you must be skin type six because I had dark skin. But again, that scale was not developed to describe skin color. It was developed to look at how people's skin respond to UV. And for me, I'm actually, although I may be darkly pigmented, I'm actually very photosensitive. So this, you know, this has been a problem. So anyway, what we have developed is a new objective scale, something called the eumelanin, human skin color scale, which is based really about how much melanin people have in their skin, specifically eumelanin. And from the palest to the darkest person, we all have eumelanin, just in different amount. And what we have done is to use published data on something called um, melanin index, which looks at how your skin reflects light of a determined wavelength. And it, it gives an indication of the, how much melanin you have in your skin. We've been able to get the minimum versus maximum and divide it into five categories. So now we can talk about people being either eumelanin low, eumelanin intermediate low, eumelanin intermediate, eumelanin intermediate high, or eumelanin high and it's based on a specific objective measure called melanin index, which you can actually get if you've got a specific instrument in your clinical setting, something called a skin reflectors instrument. So now we can stop talking about people being white or black. We can actually be a little bit more specific and have an indication of how much melanin they have in their skin. And I'll give you an example of how useful this is. I started incorporating this into my clinical practice I saw a woman of 24, parents were of Indian Punjabi ancestry. And although she was lightly pigmented skin, she had green eyes, dark brown hair, and most people would have classified her as being ethnic skin or skin of color, just based on her ancestry. If you actually measure her melanin index on her constitutive skin, which is skin which hasn't been exposed to sunlight, she has an index of 21 which is actually the lowest. She's eumelanin low. And her skin is actually equivalent to someone of European ancestry with very lightly pigmented skin. And then if you speak to her, she will actually tell you how much she's very sun sensitive and she, she rarely tans, she mostly burns. So in that sense, you know, we've moved from assuming that because you're from a certain place, you are going to be of ethnic skin or skin of color and actually now objectively being able to say, well, there's a lot more diversity in human populations than we realize and being able to give more nuanced advice to individuals. So I think this to me is really the game changer in dermatological practice. And it's exciting to have been part of this work. Thank you so much. That's, that's really fascinating. So we've, you know, you, you've, you've, very sort of interestingly and, and helpfully covered the the past and the present so I was thinking we could end up with the future and essentially what would you like to see where would you like to see dermatology changing you know and what direction do you think it will go in I think for me the key and I've already mentioned this the key game changer in dermatology is to be able to first of all start talking and being able to categorize skin color objectively and separating the link between where someone is from and their skin color. Because although 
it can they can be linked they may not be as i told you about you know understanding about diversity in in of skin color in human populations and i i think the work that we have done with this eumelanin human skin color scale is the first step it's not going to be widely and routinely used in clinical practice because at the moment you do need a skin reflectance instrument and not everybody not every clinic will be able to have this but my hope is that we're able to get this new scale incorporated into clinical practice, not just dermatology, beyond dermatology. You know, your non, your GPs, you know, in, in, in med, general medicine. And the way we do this is to try and have a very simple color matching chart to go along with the scale that we've developed. And the good news is that that's what we are working on now. And I hope we will be able to roll this out in the coming months and years, an objective skin color matching chart where for each of our eumelanin human skin color scale, we have a spectrum of human constitutive skin colors that fit into this category. So you can go into your clinical practice and start talking about people's skin color, not just saying this is a black woman, white woman, but actually to be able to say, this is someone who has eumelanin low skin type. And we know immediately that means this is the amount of melanin, eumelanin in their skin. So that is where I see the future in dermatology. And of course, that is one step because then on from there, you start understanding the genetics underlying it. So that to me, this is the future and the game changer in practice. Because once you can also objectively define people's skin color, you can start doing more research to really understand how skin responds to UV, how it responds to certain trauma, etc. Fantastic. Well, that seems like a good note to, to stop on, the sort of positive sort of steps for the future. So thank you so much for joining us, Ophelia. It's been fantastic. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. For our case study today, we're going to look at a patient who might not be famous, but whose treatment provides a really interesting example of how breaking the skin was an important part of treatment. The patient was a Mrs. Matthews. In 1769, Dr. William Cullen, Edinburgh physician and lecturer, wrote a letter detailing the treatments needed to cure Mrs. Matthews' dropsy. Dropsy was, at that time, used as a general term to describe all sorts of swellings, particularly of the limbs. Cullen had already recommended, to no avail, laxatives, on the basis that if the body was filled with too much fluid, one way to combat this was to expel fluid from the anus. He also recommended diuretics for the same reason. More urine meant less fluid in the body. In fact, Cullen gives his recommended recipe for a specific diuretic that he himself prefers. Quote, Take 25 live wood lice and pour upon them in a small cup three or four spoonfuls of treacle beer. Do this overnight, and in the morning bruise the wood lice among the beer very carefully, and throw the whole into a linen rag. Squeeze out the whole liquid and let it be swallowed immediately. But the most important treatment, according to Cullen, was either blistering or scarifying Mrs. Matthews' legs. Vesication, or blistering, was a common method of therapeutically breaching the skin that lasted well into the 1800s. An irritant, usually composed of ground-up blister beetle or Spanish fly, was coated on a plaster which was then applied to the skin. 
The resulting blister was then either left to heal or continually irritated to create a constant weeping sore known as an issue. Scarification was the other method that Cullen recommended. Scarificators were first developed in the early 1700s, although they reached the peak of their use in the 1800s. They have spring-loaded blades that deliver many cuts simultaneously. The depth of the cuts can be changed by altering the spring mechanism. Therapeutic bloodletting remained a standard form of treatment into the 1800s, and, due to popular demand, leeches were increasingly expensive and difficult to come by. The cultivation of leeches by leech farmers became a thriving industry. Scarificators were developed as a form of artificial leech. The anticoagulant effect of a live leech bite often made it difficult to stop the bleeding. It was also impossible to be sure exactly how much blood was removed when using leeches. The scarificator also had the advantage of being easy to transport and have on hand whenever the physician or surgeon needed it. According to Cullen, Mrs. Matthews' blisters or scars could be punctured and reopened whenever her doctor liked if the swelling of her legs had not diminished. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage, and we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.